Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Greetings and salutations, listeners. Cycle knots, crazy diamonds. You are here for another episode of Cycling in Alignment. I'm not sure what number this is. I think we're in the 70s now. And today I'm going to do a solo pod. I'm going to speak a bit to answer some questions that I received from a young man in Adelaide, Australia. His name is Nick. And he asked me several relevant questions about bike fitting. And what I'm going to do is answer those questions here on this podcast in hopes that I help Nick out, but also help out other people. And when I say help out, I try to be very conscious of the words that come out of my mouth, knowing full well that for every millimeter that my own event horizon expands, that event horizon containing the knowledge and wisdom that I have gathered in my life experience thus far and in my studies, For every one of those millimeters, there are kilometers, tens of thousands of kilometers of cubic space on the other side of that knowledge horizon, understanding horizon that have yet to be discovered by me and won't be in this lifetime. So what I'm saying is, while I know a lot of stuff, I don't know everything and I'm acutely aware of that. There is so much that I don't know. So while I'm sitting here behind this microphone, prognosticating and telling all the things, stating all the facts, talking about all my belief systems and opinions, you should know that I'm also aware of the fact that this comes down to strongly, strongly held opinions. How did I say this last time? Strong opinions, weakly held. And that is borrowed from... I believe Dave Asprey. Although to be honest, I can't think of who I heard that from at the moment. In any case, the point is that everything I give you is something that I really believe in and is carefully considered. All statements leave my mouth with a lot of thought and backup. That said, I'm willing to abandon any of those lines of thought or belief systems, I'll call them, as soon as a better one comes along, because my most primary life practice is non-attachment. And I'm not a Buddhist. I don't play one on the internet, but I do think that that's a good one. I think it's a good one because the only real constant is change and there is nothing permanent in life. There you go. So Onward to Nick's questions. I'm going to answer each of these and try to give a little insight as to the why. And we'll go from there. We'll see what happens. Hopefully people will enjoy it. These are all questions aimed at bike fitting. Bike, uh, Nick says, I'm currently doing a research project on the topic of bike fitting, and I would really appreciate your time to answer a few questions you have about the topic of bike fit. He's an 11-year student which I believe in the United States would be the equivalent of a junior. Okay, Nick, here we go. 
His first question, is there a point at which the hoods are angled too far in? How angled should they be? This is a great question. I've been having this discussion a lot with my fit clients recently. There's this trend in the pro peloton where riders are jamming their hoods in inward at this inward angle at about a 45 degree angle. In some cases, it's pretty extreme, sometimes maybe 30, something like that. I don't know. I haven't measured a lot of them, but this is just from observation and working in, in bike fitting and seeing how some of the riders are setting up their bikes. And I think there are different reasons for this, but one of them is that you can hang your forearms over the tops of the bars and then loop your pinkies around the innermost knob of the hood, we'll say, the the high point of the hood. And if you crank the hoods inward at some pretty significant angle, then you have the ability to kind of make these faux arrow bars, right? And that's all well and good. You know, I realize bike races are really fast right now. And I'm not impressed by that. And I know people like to talk about how races are faster than ever, but you got to understand that when you've been racing for 35 years, every year, the races are faster than they've ever been. It's just the way people talk. A lot of it is hyperbole. A lot of it is just that bike races are really hard and humans are horrible at remembering pain. You know, when you go back and think about the last race you did or the last really hard ride you did, you probably don't remember the sensation of pain. That's not something that gets welded into your head. What gets welded into your head is the fast corners and the exciting attacks and the steep climbs or getting to the top of the mountain and seeing the view or flying down the descent at speed and maybe feeling the wind in your face, maybe just the sensation of speed. But bike racing is really painful and minutes turn into hours sometimes, it seems, when you're really struggling depends on your motivation level and the context of course but there was a tangent so when riders are riding in the hoods they're doing a few things one is they're riding in a moderate position which is most useful for most riding that is to say when they're in the drops they're going really fast it's a high speed situation either in the descents or on the flats, perhaps crosswind tailwind situation, or they're sprinting. When you're on the hoods, you're riding at speeds that are less extreme on either end. When you're on the tops, typically you're climbing steeper grades. So when we're out of the saddle in the hoods, which happens with a reasonable amount of frequency in most bike races or most long training rides, what you're doing is you stand out of the saddle and you push down with one leg during the power phase of the stroke. So imagine the pedals at two or three o'clock on the right side using our clock face analogy. And what you're doing is pulling up on the hood with the ipsilateral or same sided arm. And when someone has really poor core strength, you can see this when they stand up out of the saddle because they're pushing down in the pedal with the leg or really the forces originating from the hip and from the deep core, if they're using the right technique. And then they're pulling against that leg with the same sided arm. If they're confused, they might be pulling with the opposite arm. That can be part of the problem. But you want to be pulling with the same sided arm in most cases. There are some exceptions to that. Uh, maximal accelerations, maximal sprints, especially in a really big gear or an extremely high torque situation, like a standing start on the track. Then you've got to use both arms. But for most 
climbing out of the saddle on the hoods, we'll say that you're pulling with the ipsilateral arm. And that means you've got to engage the lats and usually the biceps a little bit and possibly, and some of the obliques to prevent or offset rotation of the torso and the deep core, some of the muscles that parallel the spine on either side to prevent rotation, excessive rotation of the spine. Because if you pull really hard on the bars and push really hard on the pedals and nothing's connected in between, you're going to lose a lot of that force. You're going to have this wet noodle in between these two control centers, as Paul Check would say, the, the control center of the pelvis and the console, control center of the shoulder girdle. And so when we pull on the bars, we're counteracting the force that's put into the pedal. And if we think about this logically for a minute, there's a lot more muscle mass pushing on the pedal than there is pulling on the bars. Pushing on the pedal, we've got the glutes, which for the record is the biggest muscle in the body, the biggest muscle. The glutes are the biggest muscles. We've got the quads. We've got hamstrings and calves all making downforce to some degree. We've also got the muscles of the arm pulling up on the bars. And that's biceps and muscles of the lower arm and the muscles of the hand gripping the bar. And then primarily the lats, maybe the traps, although I would argue you don't use a lot of trap trapezius when you're pulling up on the bar in that way. And some of the obliques, as I mentioned. So which control center has more muscle mass? Well, I would argue the hips do in most humans by far, unless you're that guy who was a bodybuilder for years and you always skipped leg day. So we better have our act in gear when we're trying to counteract the force effectively. Otherwise, we're going to have excessive motion that's going to have to be stabilized the body somewhere else in the system. Stabilized by the body somewhere else in the system. You follow me? If we're pushing down harder into the pedal with the hip and the knee extensors, then we are flexing the elbow and flexing the shoulder to counteract, then we're going to have some sort of stabilization issue. And you see this in road riding all the time, especially now during modern men's pro racing and a lot of women, they're riding really, really narrow handlebars and that shortens the lever they have to counteract the force being generated at the hip. So the point being is if you were to do a row, let's say you do a bent over row. So you can simulate this if you want. Let's make it even more sports specific. We'll do a splits dance bent over row with the ipsilateral arm. This is pretty much the most sports specific exercise you can do in the gym when it comes to cycling, in my opinion. It's one of them. So we're going to stand in a split stance. So you're going to put your feet about shoulders width apart, and then you're also going to separate them front to back by about the same distance. So you're going to make a box with your feet that's about shoulders width and shoulders um, depth apart, we'll say. And you're going to put about 80% of your weight in your front foot. And in your rear foot, the heel will be off the ground, not the entire foot, just the heel, the ball of the foot will be touching the ground, right? And then you're going to bend, hinge at the hip, keeping a straight spine because you are a good athlete and you know how to do this and you're capable of doing it because your hamstrings aren't too tight and your posterior chain does not limit your hip hinge. So you're going to hinge until your body's at about a 45 degree angle. 
And then you're going to lift a dumbbell or a kettlebell with the same arm. So if you step forward with your right foot, you're going to lift it with the right arm. Now play with this. You can lift it like you would a barbell in a deadlift, meaning you can turn your wrist so that it is parallel to your hips or perpendicular to your center line. Or you can turn your hand so that the barbell is 45 degrees from your center line, or you can pull it. You can externally rotate the hand so your thumb is facing forward and the barbell will be parallel to your center line that is perpendicular to the plane of your hips. And when you pull it so that it is perpendicular to the plane of the hips, you can engage more lat. And the lat is one of the biggest muscles of the upper back. And it's also has one of the longest lever arms because it attaches all the way up and down the spine. So I would argue that the mechanical advantage of the lats is better when the hand is externally rotated. That is the barbell would be parallel to the top tube. So in my opinion, when you rotate the hoods in too far, you're compromising this lever arm. Now, does it doesn't mean you can't go sprinting out of the saddle in your hoods. Well, no, of course not. There are lots of riders who are doing it now and they adapt to that position and maybe it works for them. Maybe they've got really long arms or maybe they're just quite strong or maybe they don't care and their bike flops all over and they're missing some power when they're out of the saddle. But they're convinced the trade-off is worth it because of aerodynamics. So how far is too far is your question, Nick? Well, I can't really answer that, honestly, because it probably depends a bit on the specific anthropometrics of the rider or anatomical dimensions of the rider. Did I just say anthropometrics? Was that the correct use of that word? I'm not sure. I'm pretty tired. I'm just going to roll with it. And so it depends perhaps on some of the anatomic dimensions, anatomical dimensions of the rider, meaning how long is their upper arm, how long is their lower arm in comparison to the ratio of the femur to tibia and torso, etc. But basically my technique as a fitter is to rotate the hoods in a couple of degrees. We're talking probably between three and five, which is more than a couple at the most, because I prefer that the hand be oriented parallel to the top tube when you are in the hoods, but note that the metacarpal, the, the second meta, metacarpal joint, which is basically the joint of your pointing finger is quite large and bulbous and it kind of gets pushed out by the little ramp or knob at the end of your hood. So I prefer to offset that and allow really what's a straight hand by slightly internally rotating the hoods. And I find that gives me the best leverage to pull on the hoods when I'm out of the saddle. But If you've listened to my pods in the past, your question, Nick, how angled should they be? I'm not a big fan of the word should. I don't think there is a should. I think should is about societal expectation or people trying to live up to what their parents think they ought to be. So I can't say how far the angled in they should be. Um, I think I would say this way, play with it play with the angle, try riding on some steep climbs out of the saddle and figure out which angle feels most ergonomic for you when you are pulling up on the bar 
while pushing down on the same sided leg. That's the best answer I can give you. The next question, how do you find the ideal saddle tilt? Just testing or is there some body dimension you can use? Okay. This is a good question. Uh, for me, what I use is testing and I use testing in the real world. So I get riders close as close as I can on the trainer. And if you've seen any videos of my fit studio or photos, you'll note that I use a Saris MP1 trainer platform, which does allow some movement of the bike when it's in the trainer, which I like because it makes things a little closer to the real world. But even that's a mechanical system. Riders don't pedal the same way on trainers that they do in the real world, especially if the trainer's really fixed. And this is because the force they generate on the pedals and also the flywheel effect of the trainer flywheels, heavy flywheels, camouflage dead spots. That's one of the reasons I'm a fan of the red box trainer. The red box is a low inertia trainer. Most trainers, especially smart trainers, all smart trainers that I'm aware of today are high inertia trainers. So when you get the thing going, it's got a big heavy weight and that camouflages dead spots. That's one of the reasons that all trainers are essentially niggle magnifiers. They take little tiny problems that we have, little imperfections that we have, we'll say as cyclists, although imperfections isn't really the right word. It's more just like organic expressions of being a human. And you are perfectly fractal as you are. And adding those, a trainer has a way of magnifying those over time, compounding those. We'll say, we'll say adding them up just like compound interest, right? And they get worse and worse until they spiral out of control. So I prefer to do this testing outdoors. The testing technique is as follows. If you can ride in the drops comfortably at a pretty high pace and a high cadence for 20 minutes without excessive pressure, particularly in the front side of your crotch, man or woman, same test applies, then you're doing pretty good. Now, caveat, if you're sliding forward to the nose of your saddle, which for the record, I do not believe is the ideal solution to riding with high power and high cadence. That is to say, riding on the rivet is an Italian fitting or cycling wives tail that needs to be assassinated, in my opinion. If you're doing that and you've got a curved saddle, you're going to be feeling this pressure no matter what. So part of cycling is the hip hinge, it is one of our six primal movement patterns, and it is the most essential primal movement pattern of, of the sport. Having a proper hip hinge and having a proper hip hinge means you can generate power in each leg unilaterally pushing down on the pedals while you are hinged at the hip, meaning you have a good forward bend pattern. And if when you go really hard, your butt has to scoop forward to the end of the saddle, that just means your hip hinge sucks, which is a harsh way to say your hip hinge could use some improvement. So there's no body dimension we can use to fit this nose angle. But what I do is I know my preference, my general statement is I prefer to use a saddle with curve rather than a flat saddle. That's true for all humans because all human ischium have a curve to them. So it's better to use a curved saddle to match that ischium shape. And what I do is I put the saddle as nose down as possible, stopping just short of the point where they're sliding out to the end of the nose. So if you're dimensionally unstable on that saddle and you're sliding out to the nose and doing what I call the typewriter, Nick, since you're a junior in high school, you probably won't, don't know what a typewriter is because those are old devices for us Ichabod Crane ancient people. But basically a typewriter goes like this. You type the keys, type, 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 type. And then you have to reset the carriage and it goes back to the start. 
So when someone typewriters out to the edge of their saddle, the nose of their saddle, all the 40 year old and 50 year olds right now are snickering because I have to explain this. What's happening is your, your butt slowly scoots out on every single pedal stroke, tick, 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 tick out to the nose of the saddle. And then you're way too far forward, almost to the point where you're going to fall off and you have to go chicking and slide your butt back to the back of the saddle. We've seen this in a lot of time trialists in the past several seasons, the famously Contador and one of the final TTs of the tour a few years ago. Uh, I think it was the last year he raised the tour. I can't recall. Um, you know, there's the famous case of Tony Martin who actually tried to put basically glue sandpaper to his saddle for world time trial championships one year and ended up finishing with like a hole in a chamois and blood all over his bike. True story. Look it up. Um, because riders, even at the highest level are not able to ride in time trial in the aero bars without sliding around on the saddle. If you want more information to unpack what I've discovered or not discovered, I'm not Columbus, uh, what I've noted on time trial positions and the functional challenges, I did a podcast on that topic several episodes ago. So we want to stop putting the saddle nose down just short of the point where the rider is unstable. So we want maximum nose down provided the rider is stable. If the saddle's two nose up, you'll have pressure in that 20 minute time period in the front of your crotch. If the saddle's two nose down, you will be typewritering. The ideal test scenario is like a false flat downhill tailwind situation, maybe a fast pace line, maybe a descent, but not a descent where you're coasting a lot, one where you're pedaling quite a bit at high cadence and you're kind of hitting it. We're saying we'll call it tempo pace. If you can ride at tempo pace at a cadence of more than 100 RPM in the drops on your saddle and you're not typewritering and you're not getting excessive pressure, then you're probably close to the ideal saddle tilt. But if your saddle shape is wrong, or if your core conditioning is horrendous, or if your hamstrings are piano wires, then it won't matter what your nose angle is. You're going to slide around anyway. So there are a lot of confounding variables in that equation. So we have to eliminate all those and then get to the point where we dial in the saddle nose angle. If you are testing saddle nose angle, understand a few basic concepts. The more padded the saddle is, the less the angle matters because it's a padded thing and it's a gasket designed to fill void space, not a precise fit. The less padded your saddle is, the more precise the nose angle has to be. If you're using an unpadded SMP, I recommend raising the nose angle up or down in 0.3 degree increments. The only way to know that is to level your bike every time and then use a digital level. If you're using a saddle that's comparable in terms of curve or um, we'll say unpaddedness, then the same rule would apply. If you're using a flat saddle, you can get away with far less variation in nose angle before a rider is going to be unstable. I very, very, very rarely, maybe never recommend that a rider has the saddle nose up. And just for the record, when I'm talking about nose angle, I'm talking about the high point in the rear and the high point in the front. Don't be confused. Don't make it complicated. Don't put the level only on the nose or skip the tail. Just because an SMP or another curved saddle has a tail doesn't mean you ignore it. You measure it from the high points. So just put the level across the whole damn thing. So that's my method. Um, there's no body dimension that you can use. Although you can sort of predict nose angle within a line of saddles if you're familiar with it, such as SMP, based on the flexibility of the rider. So for example, if someone has a large saddle to bar drop of say 15 centimeters 
and they've got a good ability to hip hinge. That is when they hinge at the hip, their back remains flat and their sacrum is in line with their spine to about 40 degrees or 45 degrees, which is quite good. Then you could expect that they're going to have quite a bit of nose down on an SMP saddle, maybe as much as four and a half, five or five and a half degrees. I think I'm right. I'm floating around 5.2 right now on most of my bikes that have a lot of bar drop. On the other hand, if someone has a horrible ability to hip hinge, that is their sacrum stays closer to vertical and they hinge in their lumbar spine or thoracic spine to get to the bars, then you're going to have a nose angle that's much closer to zero. And then you're going to want to work with that rider to improve their hip hinge because again, that's fundamental to the sport. One, for multiple reasons. I'm not going to list those now. Next question. What is TDC question mark in relation to hip flexion? So I'm pretty sure Nick means top dead center here, but I'm not entirely sure. I understand this particular question. What is top dead center in relation to hip flexion? Well, the simple answer is that top dead center is maximal hip flexion. So top dead center is the point at which the crank is well now i gotta think carefully about this okay so bottom dead center people get confused on this all the time people commonly think in my experience that bottom dead center is when the crank is vertical but it's not it's actually slightly forward of vertical because it is the point of maximum knee extension so if six o'clock is dead vertical bottom dead center is closer to 530 or 540 or something like that so top dead center would technically be the point 180 degrees opposite of bottom dead center. And so that means it's actually not going to be when the crank is vertical. It's going to be at 1142 PM or something thereabouts. And it is the point at which your knee will be closest to your ribs. It'll be the point in the pedal stroke where you've got maximal knee flexion and maximal hip flexion. I think that I don't know if you're looking for a range or an angle there, but I don't work that way as a fitter. So I'll answer that also more below in one of your further questions, one of your lower down subsequent questions. Four, what is a chromial width in relation to selecting handlebar width? Okay, that's a great question too. So chromial width or the distance between the AC joints, the this is the kind of bony protuberance at the end of your shoulder. We'll say at the top side, the end of your shoulder, that little bony part, if you kind of dig your finger around in there and find that part that sticks out, that's basically where your AC joint is, just below that. And a lot of fitters will have you stand and measure the distance between those just as you would for a suit jacket and find out that you're a 42 long or whatever. But in my experience, that doesn't mean jack in bike fitting because the vast majority of all cyclists, especially when they get on a road bike, but in most, on most, in most bikes, when they get on the bike and they hinge at the hip, if you draw a line from the center of the hip through the center of the ear, well, in ideal posture, in ideal standing posture, if you drop a plum from the ear, it passes straight through the shoulder. Now, if somebody has forward head posture, that's not the case. Hopefully, someone who's a junior in high school does not have forward head posture yet. Although it's unfortunately possible because we all spend so much time staring at computer screens. So when someone hinges at the hip and they reach for the bars, almost every bike rider to some degree, some more than others 
they drop their shoulders forward of that line. And when they do that, of course, they change the distance between their AC joints and standing. So the first thing I do is look at how a rider's posture is carried on the bike and how the relationship of their shoulder and the bars interrelate with one another, right? So if someone has pretty broad shoulders while they're standing and then they get on the bike and they hunch up, well, then you got to look at what their goals are. For me, fitting is always about balancing the physiology of the rider against the demands of their event. If someone tells me that they want to compete in their first ever 160 kilometer Grand Fondo, and there's a bunch of climbing in it, and they come in with 36 centimeter bars, and it's really obvious that these bars are far narrower than even their most, we'll say, raciest arrow AC joint width, then I might suggest that they consider longer bars, especially if they're having any shoulder pathology or hand numbness or neck trouble. But I might even recommend it if they're not, because as the lower control center generates force at the pedals, if the upper control center, that is the shoulder girdle, is not stable, then you're going to have to stabilize that force somewhere else. And that usually ends up in the lower back. So when someone's using an unnecessarily narrow bar and they don't have the function to back it up, that's inviting problems in my experience. It also compromises leverage and bike handling. The wider the bars, the better the bike handle. The wider the bars, the more leverage you have to pull on the bars during a sprint. So, I mean, of course you can go too far on both those, but as a general rule, if we're talking about coming from a super, super narrow road bar, that I'll make that statement. Everything's on a spectrum. Of course you can have wide, too wide of bars. So I don't really use AC joint width. What I look at is I, I consider the history of the athlete's shoulders whether they've had surgeries or pain, whether they're currently currently experiencing pain or discomfort on the bike. And then I sort of evaluate that based on where their hands are sitting on the bars now. And this is sort of, I'll say towards the end of the spiral, meaning I start with what the most obvious thing is that needs to be worked on in a fit. I don't have a specific order. I start at the center and work outwards and refine as I go. Also understanding the principle that as you change one thing in fitting, you change everything. It's like a spider web. So what this means is that I tend to look at bar width towards the end of the fit, because if the bar, if the reach is way too long, then most of the time riders will eject their shoulders off their rib cage to make it to that width, or they'll do other bizarre compensations. Humans solve problems in really interesting ways. This is how bodies work. So we have to look at the reach and the bar drop and the saddle height and the nose angle of the saddle and the shape of the saddle and all the other things first then we get to the point where we can consider bar width. And I would say, generally speaking, for most riders, I want to see their arms parallel at maximum. That is to say, from their preferred AC joint posture, we'll call it, to the bars, their arms are parallel. Uh, I found that most riders prefer to have their hands slightly wider than this. And for most disciplines, this works out really well. I'm going to turn on my sauna now because I'm getting in the sauna after I'm done with these questions. Be right back. Sauna activated. Pretty excited about this. It's my reward after worky time. But I do love my job. Thank you all for listening. So, next question, which is five. Do shorter or longer cranks have a significantly good or bad effect on bike fit? And why would someone want shorter or longer cranks? Also an excellent question. And a hot topic in bike fitting right now, because there's a lot of people figuring this out. Um, 
I would say that generally speaking, there's about 22 reasons why someone might consider shorter cranks and about three why they might consider longer cranks. That is to say, in the vast majority of all cases, you're going to do no harm by going shorter, but you're going to gain advantage and possibly gain durability on the bike. There's been quite a bit of science on this. Um, so in particular, Dr. Jim Martin out of Utah has studied this quite a bit, and you can quite easily find a number of podcasts and some articles on Jim's lab. Uh, he works at the University of Utah, and he studied quite a bit of crank length data and worked on it. And what he found is that there's really not a huge difference in the normal ranges of cranks, uh, both for sustained power and maximal power. So people agonize over whether they should be riding 175s or 172.5s. And from the scientific standpoint, I would argue that there's really, this is unnecessary agonization. There's really no reason to worry about this. However, I think one aspect that is a little harder to quantify in the fit studio, or I'll say in the, the biomechanics lab, and is perhaps easier to tease out in a fit studio are things like pelvic stability. So if somebody's on 180s, as an example, and their hips are horrendously unstable, that is they're with every pedal stroke, even when the saddle offset and height and shape are correctly selected and have been fitted and cleat positions dialed and all those other bits and pieces are dialed. If somebody's got really poor hip stability, well, that's an indicator that they have poor deep core control or inner unit control, right? Um, they could have some neurological inhibitions to their core. They might have some dietary challenges that are inflaming their gut, which also have been shown to impact the core. Or there are actually uh, quite a few other reasons why this could be happening. Maybe they're just not training their core properly. But when we break it down, if you think about it, the lever being longer at the foot, the longer that lever is, the more it's going to challenge the lower control center of the hips to stay stable while generating force. So in many cases, when people have, especially if they've got chronic low back pain or patellar knee pain, it's a pretty simple fix. You can put them on shorter cranks and they just get better. Now, occasionally we have people who go to shorter cranks when they're challenged by these problems and they really dislike the shorter cranks. And in my experience, that's commonly because they didn't make the proper saddle adjustments going to the shorter crank. So I'll walk through those really briefly. If you go to a five millimeter shorter crank, which for the record is the absolute minimum change I would recommend. If you're going to go short, go big, go seven and a half or 10 mils in most cases is where it's really going to make a difference. It, especially if you're having problems on your current cranks, if you're having no issues, that's another story. But if you're having real challenges and you're sure that the cranks are contributing or reasonably sure, then try, try 10 mil shorter. And what you want to do is raise your saddle one to one. That is, if you go 10 mil shorter, you raise your saddle 10 mils. The reason why is because you want to have the same knee extension at the bottom of the stroke. We also want to raise your bars 10 mils. This is really important because if you raise your saddle 10 mils, but then don't raise your bars, you gained some you gain something at the hip angle. That is, you made the hip angle less acute, but then you lost it because you didn't raise the bars to reflect the same saddle to bar drop. The other point that's really important is you want to bump your saddle back a bit. Now, not one-to-one -one because again, we're undoing what we gained with the hip angle. 
I don't have a hard rule about this. I have kind of a rule of thumb and it's around 30 to 50% of how much you raised it. So that means three to five mils back. And this is really important because where people are going to feel their peak force is a little lower is at about three o'clock when that crank arm is horizontal. So if you think about it, when you shorten that by 10 mils, you've got less leverage at that point, the peakiest part of your pedal stroke. That's probably where people are feeling that they don't really like the shorter cranks. But if you bump your saddle back, that helps regain some of that leverage during that key phase of the pedal stroke. So in answer to your question, Nick, um, if I have actually answered your question, maybe I'm just rambling. Do shorter or longer cranks have a significantly good or bad effect on bike fit? Well, yes, shorter cranks tend to make hips more stable. They tend to challenge the core less. They tend to challenge patellar. They tend to downregulate or spin down patellar shear. Why would want someone want longer or shorter cranks? Someone would want shorter cranks if they're suffering from any of those problems. Someone would want longer cranks if they are a professional rider who's trying to win the Vuelta, which has about half a dozen stages that finish on a 25% grade every year. And that's the only specific cycling condition where you can make an argument that longer cranks are almost always better, usually always better pretty much, when you are one, completely out of gears, two, going as hard as you can, and three, probably out of the saddle, and four, in a really high torque, low cadence situation. During that moment, the longer crank you have, probably the better you'll go. But if you carry around a crank that's 10 miles longer the entire rest of the season through all your training rides and all your windy races and all your flat rides, and it challenges your hip stability all the time and is constantly causing you knee problems, then obviously it's not worth it, right? So I had one other thing to say on that. Well, if it's important, it'll come back. Sorry, I'm a little tired tonight. I apologize. I'm doing the best I can to get this information out. Appreciate your, your listening ears. We're going to move on to the next question. Uh, I think round number six. He didn't actually number these. I'm just counting. What are some of the examples of compensatory movements and why are they bad? Well, a compensatory movement pattern is just the neurology the neurobiology, the neuromuscular system trying to solve a problem. So one example of a compensatory pattern is that when someone's really flexible, very flexible, borderline hypermobile, and they do an endurance exercise like cycling, they might look for stability in the joints, <clears throat> not by using their muscles, but by leaning on the end range of the joint. So they might lock out their elbows, for example, and even lock kind of rest on like a droopy shoulder, like pinning them up to their ears so that their chest is kind of hang hanging off of their shoulders and off of their, the posterior spinal ligaments. And this is an efficient strategy because when you let your muscles dangle off the bones and just hang, you don't have to use muscular energy or glycogen or oxygen to feed those muscles or keep them going. So you're sparing glycogen. The challenge is that that's not a very stable way to ride a bike. So if you're just driving the pedals along and your, <clears throat> excuse me, your rib cage and your thorax is hanging off the 
the posterior spinal ligaments and your elbows are locked, then your hips are going to start to move a lot because you're not activating any core. You're not using any deep core. Your multifidus is not firing. Your diaphragm is only breathing, but it's not stabilizing. Your transversus abdominis is flappy. Floppy is the word I was looking for. And and your pelvic floor is not engaged. So you're not, you're not standing at attention, so to speak. You're just sort of laying in the lazy boy. And that is a compensation pattern that on the one hand is efficient, but if it carries over into more intense efforts or for too long of a duration, it can cause challenge. Because as the hips move, then that's going to cause pressure on perhaps the lumbar discs or in the musculature of the lower back, right? Or it's going to cause saddle sores. Or it's going to inflame your IT band, especially if one hip's moving more than the other, which is very common. So that's one example. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, to give you another example, if someone's really, really tight, so tight that they have a really horrible hip hinge, that means they can't push their hips back and can't have their butt back far enough behind the saddle, then they're going to come forward under load and they're going to come under into underextension during maximal load. And that means they're not going to use the full length of their muscles. And they're also losing the lever arm of the femur during the most important part of the power stroke. That is three, four o'clock. So don't be mistaken to think that there are riders out there who aren't using compensation patterns. Compensation patterns is just a a term that we use to put bad things in a yard. And then we look at the other yard and say, these are riders without compensation patterns. They're ideal. I mean, I've seen a few riders walk through my door who are just outstanding athletic specimens who have beautiful movement patterns, but they're far and few between the vast majority of the riders out there. Even ones being paid to ride their bikes and winning some of the best races in the world are riding around with pretty strong compensation patterns. That doesn't mean you can't win a bike race. Sometimes you've got enough bullets in the holster to win anyway. You've just got that much talent or raw grit or whatever, or drive. And I don't use the word drive for the record in a way that glorifies it. Drive comes at a price. Maybe I'll do a podcast about that in the future. But these riders are making a choice in the short term to maximize performance. And perhaps they're not digging into their compensation patterns. Maybe they are, but unsuccessfully, maybe they're completely unaware of them. Maybe they're suffering horribly on the bike and they're basically held together by soigneurs and duct tape and super glue, but they don't know how to fix the problem. These are all outcomes of what's happening. And keep in mind that when you try to unpack the compensation systems of a human body under movement, dynamic movement, it is literally the most complex thing in the galaxy by far. I mean, you think your iPhone is a work of art or some amazing marvel of technology and some masterpiece of achievement, try digging into the human body, the brain, the nervous system, the fascial system. It will, it's a factor of of inconceivable, how much more complicated and ornate and fractal it is. I'll spend the rest of my life studying it and I won't even get close, but I'll do my best. Next question. How does ankle dorsiflexion influence saddle height and why? Well, there are two angles that we're looking at when we're considering saddle height, right? I mean, well, technically three hip, knee, and ankle. But when you raise the saddle, in my experience, most riders handle it 
firstly by dropping the toes. Well, I have to reverse that statement. I'm thinking as I go here. It's common for riders to drop the toes to make it to through the bottom of the stroke when the saddle's too high. But usually they'll do it on one side or the other first. So I don't actually know which one comes first, to be honest. But I think maybe I could make the statement that some riders will start to drop one hip down further than the other. They'll start to reach with one hip more than the other to accommodate a saddle that's too high. So ankle dorsiflexion, um, just so people know what Nick's talking about is dorsiflexion is when you point your toes, we'll say up towards your shin, right? So your toes are pointing up like the dorsal fin of a shark. That's how you can remember that. Plantar flexion is the opposite pattern. So when a rider plantar flexes their foot, that's one indicator that either cleats are too far forward and that's a strategy to stabilize the foot, or they've been told that they should point their toes for some reason, or they've been told they should pull up on the backside of the stroke with their hamstrings, which is not true, or they, their saddle's way too high. These are all possible reasons for why a rider can point the toes. But keep in mind that, you know, the angle of the ankle will also influence the angle of the knee, of course. And this is simply demonstrated. Uh, one of the drills I do when I'm in my fit studio is I'll have riders ride in ballet toes for 30 seconds. This is pointing their toes down to a ridiculous degree, to absolute maximum until their foot is basically vertical. And I'll have them ride like this for about 30 seconds. And I'll give this position a number. We'll call it 10. That's ballet toes. Then for 30 seconds, I'll have them ride at the other end of the spectrum. That is uh, what we might call stompy heels. So heel down to a ridiculous degree. And notice that when you do this, if you're really doing a good job, your heels will be so low that your saddle will feel high and your butt will start to rock and your knees will almost lock out or possibly lock out at the bottom of each pedal stroke. So, and I give this a number, I call this zero. And then I do this in order to explain to riders where they are in the spectrum of zero to 10 in their habitual ankle dorsi or plantar flexion. That is how pointed their toes are or how flat their foot is. And I coach them based on where they are and where I think they need to be. And I do that extreme end of range so that they can learn where they are because it's kind of hard to know where your feet are. A lot of times when I show people videos of their pedaling in slow motion, they're quite shocked to see how pointed their toes are. They think they're pedaling with a flat foot and they're really not. That's quite common. So what is the number one rule of being an athlete? Know thyself. Take some videos of yourself. Um, we all own supercomputers in our pockets. It's not hard to put the thing on a bookcase and take 30 seconds of slow motion video of yourself pedaling. And then you know a little more about yourself. So when you do this, you learn proprioceptively where your feet are. And you, we also see that the angle of the ankle influences the angle of the knee, because when you pedal with the heel down, you will make the knee have more extension. So this is one of the reasons why I think when the saddle's too high, riders will point the toes first because they're protecting the ankle, the angle of the knee, because what's one of the worst things you can do. Well, okay. What's the entire plot of the Leonardo DiCaprio movie where he's dreaming within a dream within a dream. What's that called? Someone will tell me inception. Thank you. And how does everyone wake up in, in inception? They wake up by falling. Why would that wake you up out of your dream? Because falling is one of the most 
shocking things we can do. We walk around on the planet Earth, unless you're a scuba diver or an astronaut, you're always subject to the force of gravity. So when you fall, you know you're in trouble really quickly. So your nervous system is primed to react very quickly to a fall, a sensation of falling. If you're walking down the stairs and there's one more stair than you thought and you start to fall, you very quickly, your your muscles will tighten up and you will react in an attempt to not hurt yourself or break your ankle. Because if you break your ankle or your femur or your hip, you're dead to the tribe. You can't hunt. You can't get water. You can't defend your women. You can't do anything. So don't break your ankle. That's what your nervous system is telling you. And so when your heel is falling off the pedal and the knee is going to be hyperextended, the body will protect this by towing down. That's what I'm getting at. That was a really long-winded way to say, that's why I think riders will tow down when the saddle gets to be too high, especially on one side. And especially when they have to ride hard with a saddle that's too high, then they just push on one side only with the toe down and they kind of let the other side be dead or limp. Or they start to yank up with the hamstring on that side, which then of course exacerbates the high hip on one side, hip drop on the other, just spirals the problem up. What are some more examples of dynamic motion and their effects on bike fit? I'm not entirely sure I understand your example here. I think what you're saying is that ankle dorsiflexion is an example of dynamic motion and how it impacts bike fit. I think that's what you're saying. So another example of dynamic motion um, and its effect on bike fit. The example I could give would be the stability of the hips when viewed from a posterior angle and how they impact bike fit. Well, the more stable your hips are, generally speaking, the better you'll be as a cyclist. You'll have less challenge. You'll have less IT band problems, less saddle sores, less challenge to the lumbar spine musculature. And that actually that muscular challenge can show up almost anywhere when you've got really unstable hips. So that's a big problem. Um, so stabilizing the hips on the bike is a million dollar question. There's a lot of ways to go about that. That's pretty much all of bike fitting. So I won't take the time to unpack that here but that would be another example. I don't know if that's helpful. Another example would be knee tracking over the second metatarsal uh, or interior. You might think of interior rotation or exterior rotation of the femur in the hip socket is also related to that, right? Which is related to interior or exterior hip rotators. So if your external hip rotators are shut off and you're stuck in internal rotation in one femur, then you're for sure going to have a pattern of pronation and that knee is going to be hitting the top tube. And then you're going to have suboptimal power delivery. This is one part of bike fitting that's sort of in the dark in the medieval times in some respect is that some, some fitters actually used to coach that knees should graze the top tube while you're riding. This is absolute garbage. I will battle anyone to the naked death on this comment. It's just junk. Um, and it's easily demonstrated by, I mean, go to any gym with any strength and conditioning coach that has even a modicum of credibility or two brain cells that are holding hands. And they'll will say that a functional normalized squat or lunge pattern involves knees being stable over the center of the foot. Now, yes, 102 is that you make the body more durable by putting it out of those planes of motion and treating every joint as triplanar, but that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about basics. Hold on, check in the sauna. Good, we're almost there. It's like cosmic timing. I'm going to be done with the podcast and go right in. It's going to be perfect. 
little toning in the sauna, a little meditation, be ready for bed. Boom. Why do some saddles require tilt to work optimally? Well, I covered that a little bit in your previous question about saddle tilt, but I'll say this. Some saddles require tilt to work optimally because they have a curve. So if you have a curved saddle and it reflects the shape of the pelvis accurately, then you're going to want to tilt it down in order to encourage encourage anterior rotation of the pelvis, that is forward rotation of the pelvis, which really assists and allows a proper hip hinge. If you're trying to forward bend or hip hinge and your pelvis is being locked in a more vertical orientation because you're in a cupped saddle, but the nose is not dropped, then that saddle will actually prevent you from rotating your hips forward because you'll have too much perineal pressure or too much pressure in the front of your crotch. And that will not make for happy time. So the answer is simply because they have tilt. And then we want to reflect the optimal position of the pelvis. Now, of course, your pelvis rotates more when you're in the drops, a little less when you're in the hoods, and then less so in the tops. So we're sort of averaging out the angle that's required for that, right? And it's also a common misconception that people sit on their ischial tuberosities, specializes to thank for this, um, by the measuring of the sit bone width. This is like a this is like 20% of the information that's relevant to saddle choice, not 100% as though marketing would make you think as though you could go measure your sit bones and then determine your saddle width. This is crap. First of all, think about this for one minute. When you look at a 155 specialized saddle, it's the width from the outermost point of the saddle to the other outermost point. You don't sit there. So they're making a calculation between your sit bone width and a correlation between the overall width of the saddle, but it doesn't account for so many variables like the condition of the soft tissue of the pelvis, right? The tightness of the adductor tendons, the width of the saddle at the nose, your ability to hip hinge. The reason your ability to hip hinge is important is because when you sit vertically on a bench where you measure your ischial tuberosities, you're sitting with a vertical spine. Well, the saddle doesn't just contact the, the undercarriage of a human at the ischial tuberosities. It actually contacts the area, especially if it's made properly with the right curve along the entire ischium. That is to say from the issue pubic rami, which are the protuberances at the front of the pelvis, all the way back to the ischial tuberosities and the area in between. And that angle will change based on how much pelvic rotation or what your hip hinge is based on what handlebar position you're assuming drops, hoods, or tops. Now that's SMP, the ischium ride right along the curve and a specialized Roman works the same way. It's not a bad saddle. I'd say it's a distant second to a dynamic in my opinion, but it's not the worst design in the market. Worst design on the market award goes to the physique area own, but literally the worst saddle on the market. Well, no, the Tritone is actually worse. That was their old triathlon saddle. That thing was absolute garbage. It needed to be incinerated with a fire breathing dragon. So when we make a saddle like the SMP, the idea is to match the width and curve and angle of the ischium right along the channel of the top of the saddle. And it works really well. I will say there's a company, an interesting company out of Portugal called Jelu, J-E-L-U, that makes a really different saddle concept. Um, they're all carbon. They look like they would absolutely murder your undercarriage, but I've been riding one on my road bike for about three months now, and I'm pretty impressed with it. And the concept is that the ischium always sit on the outside of the channel, not on top of the channel. And I got to say, uh, it works pretty well. 
maybe I'll do some sort of longer pot on those saddles or something down the road. Uh, but it's an interesting possibility. But the SMP saddle is a overwhelmingly popular solution for me for a lot of my riders. It just works really well. Also, I'll mention after a brief conversation with another fitter this week, there's another misconception about SMP, which is that it's a saddle that does not allow fore and aft shifting on the saddle because of the cup. And that is not true. You can move around on an SMP. I use them on all my bikes, except my road bike now. Uh, for the moment, I'm using the Jello, but I've got a SMP on my gravel, both my gravel bikes, all my mountain bikes. I've raced cyclocross on SMPs. I mean, come on, if you're jumping on and off the thing all the time, you can make it work. So the, the concept that you need a flat saddle to move fore and aft for handling purposes, not true. The concept that you want a flat saddle to move fore and aft to generate more power, also not true. Next question, what is hip flexion range? So I think what you're asking for here is the number of degrees that I expect hip flexion to occur in. And I don't know because I don't measure that. And if you want to know why I don't use ranges for joint angles, um, I, as a resource for this article, uh, for this podcast, I will reference an article called one second here. Uh, how the U.S. Air Force discovered the flaw of averages. I've referenced this article in other discussions and pods. I'm making a note. Flaw of averages. And this article perfectly sums up why I think bell curve data is useless when it applies to an individual rider. And it's why I don't use it. Not everyone will agree with me. Full disclaimer, this is an unpopular opinion. Next question. Can using different styles of pedals affect saddle height? Yes. If so, is this only due to stack height? Yes, as far as I know. Unless you're talking about a Shimano AX pedal, which no one uses anymore, but was a really good design. Um... Yes. I mean, assuming cleat fore aft and lateral and angular adjustment remain the same for the purposes of the comparisons, I would say that yes, stack height varies, does change rider height. Uh, sorry, let me say that again. Yes. Stack height does influence saddle height because you want it to reflect the increased or decreased stack height of the pedal so that you preserve knee extension. It gets a little tricky when you're comparing road and mountain systems because consider that part of the stack height, it's the cleat when it's clipped into the pedal, which isn't always what the manufacturer publishes. So you got to measure everything when it's clipped in, but also almost no one publishes the stack height data of their shoes, except for Bont and maybe one other company. Uh, so it's really hard to know if you've got two different models of shoes on there, even if you do everything else to the best of your ability to make them equal, knowing what the stack height of the shoe is, is almost impossible. So there's that. And then you've got also Q factor does influence saddle height. So the wider the Q factor, the lower the saddle height would have to be. I'm talking about going from like road to mountain to fat bike, for example, when you get from road to track, you're actually possibly reverse, reversing the Q factor. Because if you think about the center of the hip being the starting point of the radius and the foot being the end of the radius, well, the distance between the hips 
and the distance between the feet, if those are equal, then you've got two parallel radii. But if you make the feet narrower, closer together, then you're decreasing the length of that. If you make them narrower, I'll say along the horizontal, then the radius would have to get longer. If you follow me, if you then go back to neutral and make the feet wider along the horizontal, which is what you're doing when you increase foot separation distance or Q factor, then the radius would have to get longer. So there's sort of a middle point where the foot is directly below the hip. And that for most people, that's probably the difference between road and track. Track gets a little bit narrower. So you might arguably have to, road would be your neutral, but anyway, we're talking about fractions of millimeters when you're only changing Q 10 or 20 millimeters you're talking about raising the saddle, maybe one or two mils. Um, that's a rough guess. I don't know. You could do the trigonometry if you knew it. Uh, knowing it is a little bit more, well, I suppose it's not that impossible. I've never done it, to be honest. Last question. How can a balance be found between a low position at the front and maximum power production? Well, that's making an assumption that a low position does compromise maximum power production, which it doesn't for all riders. So... I think what Nick's asking here is for most riders, and, and it's a good question for most riders, when we lower the bars too much, their power starts to go down and that's because they're having excessive hip flexion probably. And it might be because their hip hinge is poor. It might be simply because they can't generate as much power in that flexed position, right? Um, it could be because of blood flow restriction or, um, localized muscle tension at, at that extreme end range of flexion, right? There are lots of explanations, um, but not every rider loses power production when they lower their bars. But, you know, to your question, <clears throat> look, I mean, whenever you do a time trial fit as a bike fitter or really a road bike fit for someone who has aerodynamic aspirations on the bike, that is, they say they want to be, uh, you know, a criterium champion or win a road race that has, you know, anything other than climbing in it then aerodynamics are a consideration for their event. And so how do you find that balance? Well, actually, uh, to my knowledge, you really can't. Um, you have to use as much data as you can is helpful. And if you have wind tunnel data that demonstrates where their kind of breaking point is for aerodynamics, that is where they're really arrow. And then when things go really go to crap, when you, as you raise their bars, you might use that point as reference. But what you don't know is if you put their bars lower than that point anyway, and their power really goes to crap, can you train them? Can they work harder to achieve the same amount of power at that point? Or would it not matter anyway, because their aerodynamic gains would offset their decreased power output? These are two questions that we don't have the means to answer. Well, we could theoretically answer right now, the aerodynamic drag versus power curve. You could overlay those over each other if you had all that data. In most riders' cases, that requires extensive wind tunnel data and then really accurate power data. Not impossible, but not that common. However, if you don't have that data, uh, uh, sorry, rewinding. However, that whole paradigm aside, what you don't know is their adaptability curve, right? If you tell them, yeah, right now, you your threshold went down 50 watts when we lowered your bars to this point, but we can see from the wind tunnel data or the whatever other method you're using, whether it's a uh, track side um, wasp data to, you know, use their live power during different handlebar positions, or whether it's any one of the number of gizmos that will give you live CDA while you're riding down the road, 
or a chung method, for example, you could use that too and figure out how, what get a drag curve going based on different handlebar heights. That's all possible. It just requires a lot of time and dorking around. So let's say you've done that and you demonstrate that the rider is way more arrow, <clears throat> but their power's gone down a tremendous amount. Now you've got this conundrum. What do you do? Well, it depends on their adaptability. Are they a person who's going to work on their hip hinge and work on their flexibility diligently? Are they going to train in that arrow position regularly? I mean, some people need to work on their off the bike conditioning, increasing or, or optimizing their muscle tenth length, muscle length tension relationships and their mobility in their hips and hamstrings, for example, and their dorsiflexion of their feet. So they can drive the bike with equal power when they're in that low position as they can when they're riding up a climb. But some people simply need to ride in that arrow position at speed far more often. This is the number one reason why we see people's power go down when they go in the arrow bike on the TT bars, because they don't ride their arrow bars that much because most roadies don't really want to train on time trial bikes because time trial bikes are dorky and really expensive and high maintenance and they don't have water bottle cages and they're there. And if you wear that stuff out, if you're riding around, then you've got to have an extra set of wheels and have the thing set up and it just complicates your life. It magnifies the complexity of your empire. We'll say all the equipment you have to manage and all the things you have to have done before your training ride. And most people just want to get on their bikes and go ride. So if you're going to ride that TT bike way more and put hours of training in at intense, at race intensities, we'll say, then you might have a really big curve of improvement. But if you're not, then you might, the best solution for you as a fitter might be to put that person in a slightly more conservative position and accept reality that they're not really going to do their homework and adapt to that position. Or perhaps they're already a rider who's already done a ton of work off the bike in mobility and muscle length tension relationships. And they've trained a lot in the aero bars and they're sort of at their threshold of adaptation. And then you have to look more closely at the power curve versus the arrow curve and find the sweet spot. That is to say where those two meet, where you get the best bang for the buck, arrow versus power. And while almost everyone cringes at the idea of giving up watts, sometimes you go way faster in a flat time trial, even if you compromise your power because you're more arrow. So then the hard part is coaching the rider psychologically to be watching their power meter and accept that their power is going to be 50 watts lower, but they still might win the race because riders have a very hard time trading in their threshold when the ego is standing at the doorway. That's all I got. Sauna's ready. Thanks everyone for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have, well, without opening up a can of worms, if you want to send me some questions, you want a Q&A, I'll put it out there. I could do this again if this is a helpful format for people. Thanks very much for listening. I will post those uh, resources I mentioned, including the flaw of averages article in my, on the Instagram, uh, or on my website. And I will also show notes. I will also post two really good articles that explain why crank length doesn't really matter in your power. And you should just probably go shorter. Thanks everyone. Gratitude, pedal fast, pedal smart, pedal consciously. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading, 
some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear, to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings. Blessings.